Well, good morning, saints, and good morning to everyone watching from home. Let's bow our hearts in prayer as you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for your spirit that is already here and at work, glorifying Jesus who reveals the Father, your spirit that confirms and strengthens us in everything that's good and convicts us in the areas where we need to repent for our joy. We commit this time to you now for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at these first 25 verses. And friends, although it is only 25 verses compared to last week's 52, you'll notice that it is a busy passage, right? There's a lot going on in these few verses. I want you to notice, though, that there is one unifying theme. It is a singular thread that is woven throughout each of these accounts in these 25 verses. It holds it all together. Did you notice what it was when Glenda was reading it? It's a theme of repentance. Repentance is key to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are going to see that as we move through this passage this morning. Without any further ado, let's jump right into verses 1 to 4. Verse 1 begins, and Saul approved of his execution. Of whose execution? Say it out. That's right. Last week we looked at Stephen. And if you recall, Saul, who later becomes St. Paul, stood by the execution of Stephen, holding everyone's cloaks. Christian man or woman, this is a warning and a caution to each and every one of us that there is such thing as complicit guilt. If you are standing by silent, watching as evil unfolds, merely holding coats, you are giving your tacit approval. While in Saul's case, it was more than just passive tacit approval or complicit guilt, we're told in Scripture that he actively approved of Stephen's martyrdom. It goes on. Verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is the very first occurrence of that Greek word that we translate to persecution in the book of Acts. Diogmos, for those of you who are Greek scholars. It's the first time that this word occurs. But what we've noticed over these seven chapters so far has been a progression, if you will, a trajectory, a, a building toward this point of outright persecution. Back in chapter 4, verse 21, it began with Peter and John receiving a warning. Do you remember that? What were they warned? They were said, they, they were told, you guys can go free from prison, but don't you ever speak in the name of Jesus again. They were given a warning. That's where it started. Then in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it escalates. It goes from a warning to a flogging. And in Acts chapter 7, 
It escalates even further to martyrdom and execution. It's a weighty matter, isn't it? As we've been moving through the Acts of the Apostles, we've been looking to the earliest church and seeing what principles still apply to us today. What did they love that we should love? What did they abhor that we should despise? What happened to them that we might also expect to happen to us? What's biblically normal for the church? And friends, I believe that this progression is something that we can expect too. From warnings to floggings to martyrdom for the gospel. If you think that I've gone off the deep end on this one, I haven't. Look, if you've known me for a while, you'll know that I'm by nature an optimist. Did you know that? I'm a glass half full kind of guy, right? I usually have a little spring in my step and get accused of being like Tigger or something. But there are bills that have been passed through our legislature that are now in force and in action in Canada that criminalize Christian biblical worldview. They're there. They're not being enforced yet, but we should expect to experience the same progression that the early church experienced in Acts chapters 1 through 8. I do not foresee a time anytime soon where public floggings or martyrdom will be the order of the day. Although I have to say that the way that wickedness has accelerated over the last five years, who's to say, right? You'd have been talking to me seven or eight years ago, I would have never predicted that we'd be where we are today. So who knows? But the warnings are at hand. And so the first thing to note is that this progression for the earliest church in Acts, it was their experience. It is the same progression that many Christians throughout history have experienced. And it is true for many Christians around the world today. Warnings, floggings, and martyrdom for the gospel. So what do we do? How do Christians respond to this? Do we wallow? <laughs> Is anyone here a really good wallower? You'd never admit to it anyway. You know what I mean by wallowing. Should Christians, when faced with persecution and rising persecution and the progression of persecution, should we wallow? Should we lament? Should we fondly reminisce about the good old days when we were playing a home game in North America and you know, we were pretty much free from persecution. Is that a good Christian response? No. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. So it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happened? How did the church respond? Look at verse 1. They were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. The apostles stayed. We don't exactly know why. But the Christians were scattered by this persecution. Verse 4, 
Now those who were scattered, they wallowed, they lamented, they reminisced about the good old days. Is that what they did? What does it say? They preached the word. These earliest Christians were faced with persecution that forced them to scatter from their homes in Jerusalem to go into Samaria and go abroad. And they actually received that persecution as from the Lord. As Christian men and women, when we are persecuted, we must respond to the situation in different ways, but always use it as an opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the early church did. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, before the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to the apostles, he said, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and when you do, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Remember back in Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned all Christians that would follow him, and he said, go therefore and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go to all nations. And so the earliest church looked at it and they said, there seems to be rising persecution in Jerusalem. Okay, what can we do with this? Where is the gospel opportunity in this? They preached the gospel in Samaria and abroad. Look, I think this is a cautionary warning for all of us as Christians in 2023 in Canada. When perceived persecution starts and we begin to feel like the state is against us or the institutions are against us, what do we do? Far too often we take up and build forts at either ends of political spectrum, believing that political mechanisms are what the Lord Jesus Christ demands and those will be our salvation. It's not what the early church did. They didn't create a lobby group they seized it as an opportunity. They said, well, if we're being scattered, isn't that a coincidence because our Lord Jesus Christ told us to be witnesses in Samaria? You see that? Where's the gospel opportunity in it? Jesus is still sovereign and ruling and reigning over everything, even your escalating persecution. What is his plan in it? All right, that's the first thing. The second thing, so... Does that mean then that Christians should just always be passive and roll over and roll along with everything from the political powers? Simply, no. In the first place, if in the earliest church they just did that, well, there would be no persecution, would there? The very fact that there was persecution means that in some ways and somehow these Christians stood against the powerful of their day. They stood against the tide. We just need to be clear about when and how to take our stands. So what does it look like? Well, look at verses 2 to 3. Interestingly, verses 2 to 3 are sandwiched right between the verses we looked at, verses 1 and 4. 
Look at verse 2. So persecution is rising up in Jerusalem. The believers are scattered, verse 1, verse 2. But devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation for him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Stephen's buried by an unnumbered group of pious men. And they lament. You know, I think we just pass over that too quickly. Or maybe we read it as some sort of sentimental pull at our heartstrings. And it is that indeed, right? The death of the first martyr. But it's so much more. This was an act of open defiance. They, these pious men, were honoring Stephen with a proper burial and public lamenting. And they did it as an affront to the ruling elite who killed him. You know, it was clear and explicit in Jewish custom and law that if anyone were stoned for the sin and crime of blasphemy, that they were to receive neither a proper burial nor any public lamentation. It was a final curse that was placed upon them. But these unnumbered pious men, as an act of open defiance, they did both. They buried him properly and they publicly lamented as a public witness against the powers that be saying, we bear witness of the fact that everything Stephen said and did was true. Think about that. So these pious men are burying and lamenting. In verse 3, we're told that that's why Paul, sorry, at this point, Saul, was so angry. Saul saw these Christian men who were saying that Stephen's witness was validated and vindicated and correct before God. We're going to give him a public burial and lamenting. And Saul saw that and he was like infuriated. It was like red in front of a bull. And so we're told Saul then undertook to find where all of those pious men lived. And he went door to door and he dragged them into prison. We're literally told in Verse 3, that Saul was ravaging the church. And a literal translation of that word includes a semantic range that he was seeking to spoil. He was seeking to damage the church. Well, you might rightly read that and think, gosh, wasn't Saul a horrible guy? Sure. But I want to invite you to a different perspective this morning. Listen, the things that Saul did, the ways that he persecuted the Christians in that earliest time, they were unthinkable. They plagued him for the rest of his life and ministry. They haunted his conscience and pressed him into the depths of Jesus Christ and his grace because he needed it. But at this moment, at this moment, Saul of Tarsus believed that he was right. 
Saul was pious in his own ways. He was sincere. He believed that he was right in trying to squash these Christians. But in fact, we know that he was opposing God. Now, can you think of cases in our world today where people believe that they are right, where they are, in fact, sincere, but they're wrong, and they're opposing God? Well, I want to give you two glaring examples, and they're both spicy meatballs. There are people who are, air quotes, purportedly pro-choice. They're in favor of abortion. There are other people who propagate and promote the rainbow flag and the LGBTQ movement. Listen, within those two categories, there are some people who are motivated by a satanic worldview who are seeking to steal, kill, and destroy on behalf of Satan. There are some, but they're very few. The vast majority of those people are kind. They're sincere. They believe that what they're doing is right and best. They're opposing God. That's why we read this account of Saul, and that's why it's in our scriptures, is to remind us that we as Christians need to get to the heart of the issue, to the heart of the person. We need to be reminded that every single human being needs to be born again or they cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you remember Jesus told that to Nicodemus? And so when you encounter people who do not share your Christian worldview, you might want to debate them and argue with them. And certainly there's a place for apologetics, but that's not the fundamental problem. They haven't been born again. They're sincere, but they're wrong because they don't have eyes to see the kingdom of God. Look, sometimes when you're debating these people with different worldviews, first of all, you not only have to remember that they're decent people, they're good people, they are sincere people, they're just wrong. But the second thing that you need to remember is they need to be born again. You might be debating them and think, I can't believe that they can't see this. But you've forgotten that they won't see it until they're born again. As a Christian, you should be looking at it saying, there's no way they can possibly see it until they bow their knee to Jesus in repentance. It's the fundamental problem. I think we've forgotten this. People need to be born of the Spirit. And so while giving rational debates and apology is good, what we really need to give ourselves to is preaching the gospel and seeing people born again. Look, this episode in the life of the early church, in particular Saul ravaging the church, 
It serves as a warning and a reminder to us that you can be sincerely wrong apart from Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'll give you a silly example. Beautiful Sunday afternoon. If I leave church today and I sincerely am motivated by the best of intent, I want to go and visit Toronto for the afternoon. Maybe go to one of those disgusting beaches. Right, and I leave here and I get in my car, I drive, I drive south on Appleby Line, I sincerely want to go to Toronto, and in my sincerity, I get on the 403 heading west. No one would question my sincerity. I want to go to Toronto. My motives are good. I'm a decent person. I'm just wrong. And I need to get off on the next exit and repent, course correct, and change direction. Saul was sincere, but he was wrong and needed to repent. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 4. We're told the church was scattered and went about preaching the word of God. The word here is the same word that we use for diaspora. It was dispersed. The church was scattered. And so in this moment, because the church responded well to the persecution and seized it as an opportunity for the gospel, the work of Saul in persecuting them had the opposite to the intended effect. The church grew and thrived. Man, haven't we seen that over the last couple of years? As the enemy ramps up evil and wickedness all around us, more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being saved. More and more people are seeing wickedness for what it truly is and going searching for goodness and in that process coming to Jesus Christ and repenting. Praise God for that. That's how persecution works. And tuck this one away for later, right, in a couple of Sundays. This Saul who was ravaging the church, even he will be converted and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope that that gives you so much hope and comfort. Saul was ravaging the church, and yet he was saved later. This tells us that there is no one who is beyond the scope of God's saving work in Jesus. It means that when God has determined to save you, when God has determined to save someone that you know and love and pray for, there is nothing that can stand in God's way. Not even the most atrocious past. It means that there is no such thing as a hopeless case. Saul will be given the gift of repentance. Not yet. But for now... God is redeeming Saul's wickedness to bring about the spread of the gospel. And Saul's repentance in a couple of chapters, when we read that, remember this, that here in chapter 8, he was ravaging the church. He was going door to door to pious men and their families, pulling them out by the scruff of their neck and throwing them in prison. God has included this in your scriptures. 
so that you'll have hope. Hope for yourself in those moments of self-doubt. When the enemy of your soul is accusing you and saying there's no way that you could possibly be a Christian, remember this. Remember Saul. When you are praying for your son or for your daughter who are wayward, and it seems like a hopeless case, because there's nothing about their life right now that would ever lead you to believe that they would come to Jesus. Remember Saul ravaging the church. There was no reason to believe that this man would ever be saved, much less become the great apostle of the Gentiles, right? I've told you the story of my grandma Glenn who prayed for her wayward son, my uncle Russ, for 40 years, never relented. Man, there was nothing about that guy's life for the first 40 years that would ever indicate that he would come to Jesus Christ and repent. Except that he did. God can save Saul. He can save you. He can save your friends. He can save your family members. Saul ravaged the church. Okay, verses 5 to 8. Let's pick up the pace. So Philip went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. Look at verse 5. Philip, so the church is scattered, right? The apostles stay back in Jerusalem. Philip is one of the guys. He goes to this unnamed city in Samaria to proclaim Christ. Verse 6, the crowds paid attention to Philip's ministry. It's accompanied by signs and wonders. Verse 7, what do you make of that? Unclean spirits came out of people and they were healed. All right. Prepare to get uncomfortable again. I want to be really clear in saying this. Not all diseases are indicators of deeper demonic oppression or possession or troubling. Okay, that's the first thing to say. But if we're going to be faithful biblical Christians that believe the Bible and believe it is the word of God and that it creates normative patterns for what we should expect and what we should do in the 21st century, then we need to embrace this unpopular, uncomfortable truth. Not all diseases are indicators of unclean spirits, but some are, right? Some. People can be troubled by unclean spirits, and we see throughout Scripture that it's Jesus Christ alone who can set them free. It's the power of the gospel to cast out unclean spirits and see people delivered from disease. Well, you might be thinking there now, okay, finally, we have proof positive RD has lost it. Right? Or maybe you're more generous than that and you'd say, well, here's the point where I tune out. I'm willing to accept a lot of the teachings of Jesus. I like some of the biblical narrative. But when it comes to the supernatural, yeah, that's where I dip. Gone, right? Can't accept the supernatural stuff. Surely the demonic, that's just the musings of primitive people. You know those ancients, they weren't as smart as we are. I'd challenge that, but that's a sermon for the other day, for another day. Yeah, yeah, they're ancient. They didn't have science the way we do, so they believed in the supernatural. They believed in demonic but we're so much more developed and nuanced now, we know better than that. 
Maybe you have a hard time accepting the supernatural because you look out at the natural world and you see how the laws of the universe work. And you say, look, they work because they work in predictable ways. And maybe you're even a Christian and you say they work in predictable ways because God made them that way. And to accept the supernatural would mean that God would somehow compromise his own integrity by intervening in such a way that it contravenes the natural laws, right? That's how you see the miraculous. That God, in these supernatural moments, you were refusing to accept it because you think, well, that must be God suspending the natural laws and suspending the natural order. But that's not how it works in Scripture. The natural laws progress in predictable patterns unless there is outside interference or force brought about and brought to bear. That's abstract. Let me tell you what I mean. If I strike a billiard ball with a cue and it's on a level billiard table with nice, soft, smooth felt, it will, if it's not spinning, predictably go in a particular direction in a straight line for a predictable distance depending on how hard I've hit it, right? That's like a law of, it's like Newton's what law, right? Anyone? Anyway, it's one of Newton's laws. And you can, you can predict it and you can expect it. But what if just as I struck the billiard ball and it began to roll, Reuben went over to the side of the table and just lifted it? What would happen? Well, the cue ball would no longer travel in a predictably straight line. Instead, there is outside influence brought to bear on that moment, and the laws of nature are being employed, just exercised by an outside agent, and now the cue ball no longer goes straight, it goes to the side, because there was an outside actor. Well, friends, that's how the supernatural works. It's not that the laws of nature are suspended, it's that we as Christians believe that there is a living, personal, active God who exercises his agency on the cosmos that he has created. He lifts the pool table. Exodus chapter 14 is the moment where the Israelites cross the Red Sea. And you know, if you have a cartoony view of that, it's like, well, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea because for a moment, God suspended the laws of nature and water was no longer wet. But if you read the account closely in Exodus chapter 14, you're going to see exactly what I'm telling you. It says that as the Israelites came to the Red Sea, that the Lord God caused a strong wind to blow from the east and separate the Red Sea. You see, the supernatural is not God suspending the laws of nature. It's God inserting himself as an agent, acting on and causing the laws of nature to work in different ways. Predictable ways. That's what's happening. So you don't have to be, like, anti-rational. You don't have to check your brains at the door to accept things like demonic, like supernatural. In fact, they make perfect sense from a biblical perspective. Philip's ministry in this unnamed city in Samaria reminds us that the supernatural is real. 
It reminds us that unclean spirits are real. And it reminds us that the proclamation of Christ is the means by which God lifts the pool table. It is the means by which God sets people free as an outside acting agent. Verse 8. We see that there is a much joy in the city, right? Well, the only way that there was much joy in the city was because there was massive repentance. The people of that city received the gospel from Philip and they received it with joy. Repentance is inherent to the good news of the gospel. Let me say that another way. If you don't have repentance preached and seen, then there is no gospel. The gospel is good news that demands a radical change. It requires that when we hear the good news of God's acts in Jesus, that we would respond by humbly surrendering, that we would bow our knee. Repentance. It means that when the gospel was preached in this unnamed city in Samaria by Philip, that these Samarians did the very thing that we ought to do. They said things like, man, I was wrong. I used to live as though God didn't exist. I was wrong. I used to live as though Jesus was a good philosopher and a good teacher, but he wasn't a Lord who held sway. I was wrong. Bow my knee to him as Lord. That's what repentance is. True biblical repentance is the response to the gospel, and it demands that I think we look more closely at some of the language we use in modern evangelicalism. Two things in particular that I, I wish we would expunge from our Christian vocabulary. Okay? The first one is when we, again with the best of intent, we tell people that they need to ask Jesus to be their Lord. Man, you don't ask Jesus to be the Lord. Jesus is Lord whether you acknowledge it or not. If you think that you ask him to be Lord, then you actually think that you're the Lord and you're giving him permission. Think about that. Don't use that anymore. It isn't that you ask Jesus to be the Lord. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those who do it on this side of the grave, it will be for their salvation. For those who do it on that side of the grave, it will be to their damnation. Jesus is Lord. You don't make him Lord. What's at stake is not his lordship, it's your saving. You've got to get rid of that one. Another pet peeve of mine. <laughs> when I hear Christians again with the best of intent, they say things like, you need to invite God into this situation in your life. Invite God into this situation? Man, God's already there. What you need to do is stop running from him and stop rebelling against him and stop pretending that he doesn't exist, covering your ears going la, 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 like a toddler. you got to repent. The 
like the Samaritans who paid attention to the proclamation of Christ. We must repent to the Lord Jesus. Be really clear on that one. And what we see in verse 8 is that there is so much joy that comes with that. Joy in your life, joy in your family, and joy in concentric circles that goes out from there. Repent. Verses 9 to 24, last chunk. We're introduced to Simon the magician. Okay, verses 9 to 11, Philip has come to this city in Samaria. He's proclaiming Jesus Christ. There's accompanying signs and wonders. The people pay attention. But we're told that there's already a guy in the city named Simon and that he was doing pretty amazing things. Look at verse 9. Long before Philip arrived, Simon is doing signs and wonders. But we're told that this is not something that he did through Christ. He did it through magic. Verse 10 to 11, we see that the people also paid attention to him. Did you notice that? Listen, it's, it's a reminder for us of how fickle can be the crowd. Human beings are like um, bass in a pond that they like are distracted by anything shiny. The shiny lure goes by and you're like, ooh, that's cool, and you go bite it. So Simon is working these things by magic and the crowd is paying attention to him. Cautions us against going after everything that's shiny. You know, there's two different categories when it comes to magic, okay? The first one is parlor tricks, sleight of hand. The second category, and I believe that this is more likely what Simon was practicing, is demonic. But both can be mistaken for works of God. That's what you see in verse 10. So we carry on in verse 12, the proclamation of Christ through Philip that's accompanied with real signs and real wonders that are by the Lord Jesus Christ results in people repenting and being baptized. Verse 12, verse 13. Gosh, even Simon himself, we're told, right? He, air quotes, believes. He's baptized. And he continued with or followed Philip. But is Simon truly converted? Did you see any sign of repentance? Look, the text lumps him in with the other converts who were baptized. But if you look at the broader context of the account of Simon, you see him in a few moments trying to barter in a way that's inconsistent with true faith in Jesus. John Calvin says that what we have here is somewhere between faith and pretense. Simon was baptized, but he never truly repented. We're going to see that in a moment, but we're tipped off in the end of verse 13. We're told that he believed that he was baptized, he continued with Philip, 
And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So he was still pretty hung up in the externals, wasn't he? He didn't really have a change of heart. Okay, so this is all going on in this city in Samaria. Peter and John are with the apostles. They're back in Jerusalem. Remember, they never left during the scattering. Peter and John catch wind of the fact that many people in Samaria are receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ with joy, that they're repenting. And you got to understand that in this context, Samaritans were like the least likely people that anyone from Jerusalem or Judea would ever think would be a part of God's redemptive plan. The people of Jerusalem looked down on the people of Samaria, kind of the way that people from Toronto looked down on people from Oshawa, right? Or kind of the way people from Burlington looked down on people from Hamilton. Right? They're like, that can't possibly be so. And so Peter and John, they go to Samaria, verses 14 to 17. They lay hands on the Christians there to receive them as a signal to the rest of the Christian church that these guys are legitimate Christians. Simon is watching. He sees all this happening. And Simon's exposed. Verses 18 to 19, Simon sees this happening. He sees Peter and John laying hands on these guys. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're being received into the church publicly. And Simon says, yo, guys, here's some money. Can I have the same power to do the same thing? And in verse 20, Peter gives one of the most scathing indictments in all of Scripture. Literally in Greek, it says, may destruction take your money with you. If you were, if you were giving a modern-day translation, it would be something like, Simon, to hell with you and your money. Verse 21, Peter takes it even further. He says, Simon, you've got no part or portion in this. There's no blessing for you. Verse 23, Simon, you are caught up in the bond of iniquity and in the gall of bitterness. There's only curse for those who trifle with God. You read that and you think, man, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Well, we're reminded here that the truth is itself loving. Man, we need to reclaim this. To caution, to warn, to plead with those who are perishing, to repent and turn back from hell, is loving. Verse 22, Peter doesn't give up on Simon. He calls him to repent. He's like, man, just repent, pray that this destruction won't come upon you. He's saying to Simon, man, it's not too late. As long as you have breath, you can still repent. You can still pray. You can still return and say you were wrong and bow your knee to Jesus. Simon, just repent, please. But Simon, verse 24, isn't sorry. He's sorry he got caught. He doesn't want to repent and be born again. He wants a get-out-of-hell-free card. 
He doesn't want to change. He just wants to avoid the consequences. Look, the problem with Simon, it isn't that he had money. It's the extent to which his money had him. You see, Simon was so caught up in his power and in his money and in his reputation that the thought of bowing his knee to a Lord, Jesus Christ, was inconceivable. He didn't want to bow his knee to Jesus and be born again. He didn't want a change of heart. He wanted to use the Lord for his own glory and for his own status and for his own power. Friends, that's not repentance. That's not belief. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have not yet repent, Amend your life. Change direction. You might be a good person, a decent person, a kind person who's motivated by the most sincere motive, like Saul. But in fact, you've been opposing God. Or, you may be a rich person with a good reputation. And like Simon, you are counting that as too great a cost to bow your knee to a Jewish carpenter. And for you, Jesus is just another way for you to achieve greater fame, greater money, and greater power. It's chilling in this passage how it ends. We never hear Simon repent. And so we have to conclude from Scripture that he never did. Peter said to him, pray to God and repent. And Simon said, man, would you just pray for me that I can escape the consequences? Look, if you're here today, stop asking other people to pray for you and pray for yourself. Pray and ask God to grant you the faith to believe, saving faith, to grant you true repentance, that you would mourn over your sin and despise it and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Pray that and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Scripture we see a story of Christians, a story of others who hear the gospel and tragically will not bow their knee to Jesus. We thank you that from cover to cover, Scripture is the story of you, your mercy at work, your saving work in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that even here now, those who have been
sincere but wrong would repent. Your Holy Spirit would convict and show them the beauty of Jesus. Pray also for those who have been playing games with God, seeking their own power, their own prestige. That again, your spirit would convict that they would bow their knee and be born again. Amen.